Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn on a disturbingly mild winter's day in Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller on a very depressing, damp and grey day in South East London. But our guest is a formidable historian, is the nearest thing that cricket writing has to E.P. Thompson, the famous author of The Making of the English Working Class, and he's done the same uh, for cricket, wouldn't you say, Richard? Well, I think he has, and let's um, ask him how he's done it. Duncan, you've written a very, very iconoclastic and radical book about the origins and the current state of English cricket. It's called Different Class, and essentially it overturns the conventional narrative of um, English cricket as a game developed in the rural south by enthusiastic amateurs. You think its real origins lie somewhere else, don't you? Uh, Tell us where. Um, Hello, gents. Uh, It's not that uh, the origins lie elsewhere, uh, because it's pretty clear from the historical record that, yes, the the earliest records relate to, indeed, my hometown uh, of Guildford uh, in Elizabethan times. So the game did seem to originate in the home counties. Uh, What I argue is that the culture of cricket that is associated with the rural self uh, was effectively universal. But uh, what happened was there was a change. The amateurs of the South moved away from what I regard as the authentic culture of English cricket uh, or cricket generally. And that was effectively socially open, community-based cricket. That was, above all, uh, as the aristocratic gambling would certainly testify, overtly competitive. And then what the Southern elites did Uh, So, as I say in the book, after the First World War, is that they totally rejected that version of cricket, the authentic version of cricket, and then reinvented it in their own image to be this sort of genteel, non-competitive or friendly version of the game where everybody played in the the so-called the right spirit. And that is what I take to task, because that which eventually developed to define English cricket as a whole, I think is wholly disingenuous image. So basically what you've done is to attack everything which Richard and I stand for, all all the virtues of sportsmanship, the amateur ethos, the social teams, which we've spent the last 50 years uh, religiously playing for every Saturday afternoon. You, You take this image of cricket which has been part of our lives and tear it to shreds uh, well in some in some respects peter yes i do <laughs> you don't you have any compassion for us <laughs> i do i do of course you know and we we have played cricket together as as you know the uh, the listeners may not know um my my issue is that there is absolutely nothing wrong with playing cricket uh, in a non-competitive format But what I take issue with historically is that there was an upper echelon or a self-proclaimed upper echelon of club cricket in the South that declared itself the apex of cricket in the South when it was playing essentially social rather than competitive cricket. And that is where I draw the line. Absolutely no problem whatsoever with people playing friendly, non-competitive cricket. I've done it myself. But what I take exception to in the past, after, with the banning of competitive cricket after the First World War by an organisation called the Club Cricket Conference, is that you had this cartel of elite middle-class clubs that proclaimed to be the best of cricket in the South, when, in fact much like many of the amateurs that were playing in first-class cricket, the standard was very poor. But because of their status, because of the quality of their grounds, they were able, and the fact that they were obviously very well connected with journalists and organisations like the Club Cricket Conference, they were able to present themselves as the best when, in fact, 
there would have been countless numbers of working men's teams, even within the same village, that would have probably been better players. So that is what I take exception with. You can't, you know, they wanted their cake and eat it. So what you're talking about here is is Orwell's remark in the war, didn't he? Wrote an article saying England is a, you know, is a family with the wrong people in charge and the wrong people took charge of cricket in the, in the 1920s you're saying yes what 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 happened after the introduction of the FA Cup and then the football league uh, what the elites running british sport more generally and not just cricket learnt after the professionalization of football is that socially open overtly meritocratic competition as exemplified by the football league was the wellspring of working class emancipation. And if there's one thing that the elites in this country, sporting or otherwise, detest, it is meritocracy, I'm afraid to say. And that is why the Club Cricket Conference went to the extreme lengths of banning cup and league competition in the south of England uh, for up to 50 years. And you've seen, you know, the banishing of professionalised, you know, the split in rugby. What happened at a national level in rugby happened all the way down into villages in the south of England, uh, such as Cranley, which is only just up the road from me here. Uh, Prior to the First World War, Cranley Cricket Club would have been effectively a community club that represented everyone. But what you had once people from the... Uh, the middle classes or the suburban classes, shall we say, once they recognised that competition, cups and leagues, meant they didn't get to choose who they played against. They rejected competition entirely. And that meant very cleverly that without cups and leagues, discrete middle-class clubs, so Cranley Cricket Club was then taken over by the local middle classes, Uh, forcing the establishment of a separate working men's team and never the twain shall meet because the working men's team played in a local league, uh, whereas uh, Cranley uh, coveted visits from, you know, the MCC, uh, the Stock Exchange, you know, other (laughs) people like them. Good gosh, the MCC. I agree with you about the MCC. Being visited by the MCC must have been hell on earth, actually. um, (laughs) So what you're saying really is what happened there to cricket in these these villages and and towns was rather what happened to the public school system, which is called um, a bit of a giveaway. There's a public schools, i.e. for everybody. And they were privatised in the interests of the middle-class elite somewhere in the 19th century. Mm, very much so. Yes. I mean, um, they didn't just steal the commons. Uh, you know, they, they took over the, you know, the public schools. Uh, yes. And it, but the, the thing that really sort of shocked me about was just how deep the, you know, the elite's fear or middle class fear of equality really was. Uh, you know, many sort of sporting histories uh, up to this point have argued and invariably they cite the split in rugby that uh, professionalism was the fly in the ointment well I I would go further and I would say it it was meritocratic competition itself that is what they didn't like Uh, and professionalism you know the banning of professionals uh, was a very handy shield for that Uh, because you know the events in the south of England where the club cricket conference dominated uh, and uh, like white white collar workers you know from 1865 Cranley had a public school open and a train station and from there on in it was very much villas that were being built rather than housing for local workers so the Mm. demographic of the village changed entirely and that created a critical mass where the middle classes were able to take over uh, in social and cultural terms. And, you know, Surrey's well known now that, you know, working class people struggle to afford to live here. Uh, but actually that goes all the way back to the post-First World War period. Cranley was, of course, the alma mater of E.W. Swanton. Mm. And I, t- I target him, don't I? 
certainly do. You target, you target quite a lot of other people who, um, in a way, who, um, you know, we tend to regard as heroes and we tend to regard as rather as on the, the left or the radical kind of stream of cricket. Um, but I want to ask first, I want to pick up first the subtitle of your book is the the untold story of English cricket. And you must present it. You tell a lot of that um, untold story yourself, but you almost present the untold story as a sort of conspiracy to, um, you know, deny the existence of this sort of cricket or deny its importance, and to say that the, you know, to to maintain this fiction that the the right way to play cricket and the summit of cricket was the uh, the cricket played by the, you know, the amateurs in the right spirit. Yeah, because this was my problem with that image is that. Um... You know, there are talkers and doers. They never lived up to those ideals. They never could because the mere fact that they introduced the amateur professional distinction. You know, what's fair about, where's the fair play in that? Um, I'm afraid they fell at the first hurdle. Um, so it's, you know, it's almost a straw man. And I'm really surprised nobody hasn't taken this image to task. I suppose Mike Marcuse uh, uh, certainly did, had a go. Uh, but that's what. Well, when did that come out? Nineteen ninety-four. Marcuse did have a go at. He attacked it, the um, the established image, but he didn't really replace it with an alternative history, which I think is what you've uh, achieved to a very great measure. I mean, you've um, you've delved into some um, unrecorded, largely unrecorded aspects of English history. Your index cites twenty-three local and regional associations, which are very scantily covered uh, elsewhere. And 62 different leagues, including two that really caught my eye, the Bradford Mutual Sunday School League and the Music Trades London League. And this is an enormous, isn't it? It's an enormous sort of stream of cricket, almost deliberately neglected by, by other cricket historians, don't you think? Oh, undoubtedly. And, you know, we can't, we can't you know, question the fact that first-class cricket you know, as in test and uh, county cricket has dominated. I mean, that that's a natural course of events. Uh, but there's been plenty of books, you know, written about cricket more broadly, uh, which have consciously, as CLR James said, you know, they've been willfully uh, overlooked and no, none more so than the league cricket played in the Midlands and the North. Uh, because that was deemed as, you know, it was seen as A, working class, B, prof or professional, or at least semi-professional, uh, and heaven forbid, commercial. Uh, but that was all well and good if you had lots of um, benevolent uh, subscribers to keep to bankroll your clubs. But back in the real world, um, <laughs> as cricket clubs are finding... Uh, everywhere today, no matter what their status, is that you need to have uh, income. And if we're not charging money at the gate, then you need sponsorship and, and things like that. So the leagues were basically uh, operating a very sensible, modern model of organisation, whereas the county championship had its head in the sand and not only presented itself as some sort of throwback to a what was the phrase that uh, Burley used? A, a, a feudalistic dream. Um, you know, they they couldn't even face the reality of uh, an urban capitalist society that existed in the late 19th century, uh, let alone the 20th century. Um, so yes, I think I think the whole image of uh, amateurism and you know the absence of all these leagues and associations uh, is is crucial because. The, it was these leagues and associations and not a handful of iconic amateur gentlemen amateurs that really sustained and developed the game. They are the people who deserve the credit for turning cricket into a national game. More than WG Grace. I that really might love be a this. bit controversial, but no, no, I, no, I would I, go... One of the lovely things about... One of the important things about your book is that it... it it throws up so many lines of argument. And here you are talking about the county championship. You just made this fascinating, arresting, and I think true point. It's an anti-capitalist movement, the county championship. It's raw, rustic, pastoral, based along ancient 
county boundaries rather than the new um, urban uh, the new cities arising in the in the late nineteenth century. So, um, and, and yet you're attacking capitalism too. So what's wrong? What, what, but so you follow enough. You agree that capital with with the county championship ethos that capitalism is sort of wrong or deplorable, but and you you're disagreeing about the way in which the county championship confronts the menace of modern capitalism. Yes, again, it, it's it's just what I can't bear is is the hypocrisy, because these are people who self-proclaimed gentlemen amateurs that very often, you know, look at how much money W.G. Grace earned from cricket, uh, who would say one thing and then do another, you know, uh, well-paid sinecures as uh, county secretaries for amateurs. Uh, you know, it's the hypocrisy. Well, yes, but the county championship, the county championship team, ultimately it is meritocratic because when you go out well, no matter who you are going on a cricket field your friend Truman came you know you were you were whistled up from a, from a mine from a mine shaft uh, you're just a terrifically good bowler and however good uh, the amateur batsman who comes in to face you you're going to knock his block off aren't you uh, well it's the fact that you had you know very average amateurs right up until 1963 taking places of talented working class men who would obviously have played as a professional you know most counties insisted on having an amateur captain irrespective of their standard well that's not meritocracy some some counties paid more to their amateurs didn't they because well and and there's the hypocrisy again yeah (laughs) Um, i mean jim laker famously asked if he could turn amateur to make more money didn't that's it yeah Yeah. (laughs) but um how important do you think wg grace was seems to me W.G. Grace was a very pivotal figure in establishing this sort of amateur supremacy over the game, uh, even though, of course, he was a, you know, a shamateur if, if ever there was one, made a fortune out of being a cricketer. But for W.G. Grace, do you think that the, and, um, you know, his ability to make people believe that amateurs were the, were the best players, uh, might cricket have developed as, as association football did, as a professional dominated game? I, th- I think the people running the county clubs were very fortunate to have him around. But it was also um, the fact that, uh, you know, you had a very prolific and widespread sporting press at that time who really bigged him up, shall we say. <laughs> I, th- I think without that combination, uh, I think county cricket would have probably, you know, faded away because... Uh, as I cite in the book, um, as far as uh, ordinary cricket supporters were concerned, uh, the cricket that was played in the leagues uh, was superior. And more importantly, it was accessible. You know, the county championship was, again, to quote Burley, you know, a three-day game designed around the meal times of the leisured, whereas the leagues, like association football, organised the game for the benefit of its audience. Uh, you know, you, you had Saturday afternoon games, you know, once we had the introduction of what we now know as the weekend, after various acts, uh, the working classes, you know, preferred a faster game where you would actually have a definitive result, weather permitting, uh, by the end of the day. So yes, the county championship owes everything to that freak of nature. Uh, a massive hypocrite, uh, W.G. Grace. And had it not been for him, I might not have had to write the book. (laughs) Picking up Burley's great remark, isn't it um, sort of lucky for cricket as a whole that the amateurs were able to establish three-day cricket and even test cricket as kind of the summit of the game? Because, you know, from an artistic point of view, from the point of view of the skills and the drama of the game, they are the summit of the game, aren't they? It's, It's purely by accident. Mm. Um, you know, we, we we are now left with an important cultural legacy. There is no two ways about that. And I'm with you. Test cricket is the apex of the game. But there is, you know, a caveat. And that is, even in the late 19th century, three-day county cricket and five-day test cricket, or timeless tests even, uh, were an anachronism. They didn't fit in with the lives of everyday people. 
And unfortunately, in this sort of uh, late stage capitalist society we exist in now, where people's working hours are ever longer, or people have to be, uh, to quote, what was it, Tony Blair, uh, ever more flexible, the time required to either follow, attend, or play cricket is simply not available. So I fear if if the three-day county championship, as it was then organised, was an anachronism, I fear it, it really does need a serious remodelling if it is going to be fit for the 21st century. And I think football, as I say in the book or imply in the book, I think the football model needs to be looked at. That is what made football the people's game and the idiosyncratic organisation uh, and deliberately idiosyncratic organisation of the county championship, plus obviously the way it's being presented in histories and by journalists, has made it a posh sport. Yes, can I... Can I just confront you on this? I think there is a contradiction, I mean, a really interesting, fruitful contradiction in your argument. So football versus cricket. Now, football, I I accept your point. It begins as a working class game, as does cricket. Football has commercialised itself to an outrageous degree, whereby it is the ultimate neoliberal, to use the left-wing jargon, sport. It's created a tiny superclass of super-rich uh, footballers owing no allegiance to their clubs, to their communities, they're whizzed around the globe, they're in Barcelona one minute, Man City the next. They have zero connect, real connection to the urban working class, which you mythologize. Whereas if you look at the English county championship, which you are trashing, actually again and again, you will see counties, you know, look at the Dolivieras at Worcestershire, the Cowdries at Kent and so on, which have generations of people from the, from the community being brought up. And so actually the county championship, even though you interestingly critique it, is much more attuned and connected with local local people and local communities than these deracinated super clubs, which are now have become such a manifestation of British f- fake popular culture. Uh, I wouldn't say that because, you know, look at the racism scandal that's going on. Are you trying to tell me that Yorkshire County Cricket Club are connected to their Asian community? <laughs> the racism scandal in Yorkshire, I would submit to you. Uh, prof- <laughs> professor is unfortunately a, a local phenomenon. It springs out of the community. It's not been imposed on it. That's an interesting discussion, though. Yeah, I, 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 unfortunately, you know, the people attending first-class cricket in this country are overwhelmingly white at 90%, I think it was, uh, men at 80-something percent, uh, and more than approaching 60% of those declare themselves white middle-class. It's not that much of an offence. About 60% of the country is probably white middle class. I mean, I, I, I don't think you... I think you almost take this argument to the point of absurdity, don't you? Uh, I'd say you might need to get out more, Peter. <laughs> I think you might too. Uh, no, I mean, I've lived in Leicester. I've lived in Yorkshire. Uh, apart from, you know, although I'm born in Surrey... Uh, no, I, I don't think that the people, that the demographic that attend uh, England matches in particular are in any way representative of this country. No, there I do agree well, with you. Expen- as you say in the book, it's such an expensive business. It is. I mean, I'm not saying Premier League football's cheap. No. Uh, and I know plenty of people locally that I, when I was working on building sites, I remember a long time ago, it must be 15 years ago, uh, meeting a lad who used to be a, a season ticket uh, holder at uh, Chelsea, and he stopped going. He just said, mm. "You know, one minute I was surrounded by the lads, uh, and then the next minute, after all the money came in, I was surrounded by middle-class mums with their kids who had their faces in their Nintendo, mm. asking, oh, is Zola on yet? You know, they're not even watching the game, and he can't swear, you know. So, you know, when you, when you argue, yes, football has undoubtedly been taken away from its original demographic. I mean, it, it's been, it's gone through a, a phase of bourgeoisification, awful word. Um, but you can still go to lower level uh, football 
uh, and have the authentic experience. And I think as a West Brom fan, uh, thank goodness for that. <laughs> I agree about that. Proper old-fashioned club, one of the founding teams of the football league. Indeed. Not doing very well. Not doing badly, but doing a bit badly, of a mess at the moment. You're a real club, I buy that. I accept yeah. that. That's um, one of the big themes in um, your book, um, Duncan, is the impact of Thatcherism on cricket. You sort of argue Thatcherism is a very um, you know, iconoclastic movement uh, in terms of... Uh, or at least it's, a lot of its rhetoric was directed against, um, you know, the old fuddy-duddies, um, you know, who ran things, um, and the deal of noblesse oblige. It was an aggressive sort of free market capitalist ideology. But um, in a curious way, I think it's, you could argue that it's reinforced um, the migration of cricket into the leisure amateurs, isn't it? But tell us how you think Thatcherism influenced the class structure and the class control of cricket, because you think it did. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's multifaceted, as you can imagine. Uh, obviously, the ECB was established almost at the apex of Thatcherism, uh, and they immediately reflected that. Uh, Jettison, the old gentleman amateur, uh, you know, blazers uh, to be replaced uh, by the suits, and obviously, they adopt the Thatcherite or the free market principles uh, were very quickly then turned onto uh, coverage of cricket domestically, and the free market wins out. And then we have Test match cricket taken off free to air broadcasting. But beyond the ECB, and as badly as they have run the game, the effects of Thatcherism beyond the game actually had unintended consequences. So, of course, the first one to, to cite would be deindustrialization. Uh, you know, the doing away of the, the sort of the mixed economy uh, and sort of Keynesian economics uh, that gave us the welfare state. And obviously then there was the privatization of uh, things like British Telecom. And what that eventually meant was the taking away of very often hard hard-won benefits such as workplace leisure and this included cricket and you had a host of industrial cricket grounds around the country that hosted first-class matches and they're all gone very quickly they you know once you had the sort of corporatist culture introduced uh, these were very valuable but wholly unprofitable assets so they were sold uh, and this is to be deeply regretted because workplace sport, as I argue in the book, was arguably the most successful experiment of what we would broadly call race relations. As far as multiracial sport in this country went, workplace sport was the best example by a mile. And it's all gone by the late 1990s. And I experienced this directly. I used to work at Surrey Police. and. You know, I played various games of football and cricket for the police. Uh, by the time I left uh, Surrey Police, uh, what was a very good cricket wicket was a car park. Then, of course, there's the imp implementation of this corporate culture to education. And, you know, we've had the sales even between 1981 and 1997, there was the sale of more than 10,000 state school playing fields. Now, if you're not going to tell me that that's not going to have a knock-on effect and you know, reduce opportunities for working-class progression within cricket, you know, um, yeah, trip, to trip to savers, isn't it? But, but <clears throat> then it, it went even further because then having created this damage... You know, the avowed cricket lover, John Major, then came in as a replacement and he introduced his, uh, was it sport raising the game policy and uh, the funding of sport via the National Lottery, which, of course, didn't incur any direct uh, costs to uh, the taxpayers. But what that meant was the abolition of the Sports Council and, crucially, its credo of sport for all, something I directly benefited from. Uh, with the building of our sports centre in Guildford uh, in, the, in the early 70s. And that abolition of sport for all meant that government policy from there on in directly mirrored the elitism that you would see within the MCC, Test and County Cricket Board, 
and latterly the ECB. So unfortunately, we're now in a situation where, you know, Dulwich College has eight playing grass playing fields for cricket. The borough in which it is located only has six, and only one of those is allocated to a state school. Now, it's almost a fait accompli, isn't it, that you're going to have an overrepresentation, irrespective of class prejudices and things like that. Just the mere access to facilities will dictate, you know, and it does, and right. it's not just cricket. It's even popular music today has is being dominated by the privately educated. So you've got old Etonians passing themselves off as folk singers now. Um, but going back to the cricket, moreover, you know, a new era of austerity isn't helping to turn this around. So, yeah, I, I think the effects of Thatcherism have been absolutely devastating. It's not just Thatcherism, is it? I mean, new Labour. Uh, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's everyone basically since 79 has followed the same path. Oh, yeah. I mean, Blair's government equally guilty. I, I mean, a lot of a lot of your arguments are extremely troubling and extremely powerful. I uh, and of course, what you're saying there is true. What about um, can, can we just come on to your uh, Richard uh, and I agree that your bio, your book rather reminds us of Sherbaktar's powerful, coruscating autobiography which I strongly wrote controversially yours where he just takes down virtually every emblem every icon every <laughs> significant figure in Pakistan cricket um, and you do the same to all these people we absolutely love and revere like well I don't know love and revere Miles Jupp gets it in the jaw well, sure I, yeah. um, <laughs> Marcus Berkman gets a kick in the goon um, see even you know, Derek Burley Neville Carter's uh, you know, CLR James, you know, it's you just one by one, you take them out and shoot them. <laughs> I wouldn't shoot James. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of it. James, actually, I mean, let's put it slightly more mildly, a lot of these figures come out a little diminished after you read your book. Um, they're not quite so heroic as, as we thought of them before. Um, does anybody come out better from your book um, that uh, any great name uh, you think has been undervalued? Hmm. Uh, well, just to go back to the, to explain hmm. why I did what I've done, uh, you know, as far as these criticisms go, I think many of them are long overdue. Uh, you know, uh, propagandists uh, like Cardus, I think, have done a lot of damage to the game. You know, they, they are in part chiefly responsible for creating this aesthetic, you know, genteel image of cricket, which I think in the long run, you know, if we look at, I think I think cricket's in an, an advanced state of cultural decay right now because this notion of it being fair play and, and, and this it's still presented as this feudal dream from like the 18th century, I think that makes cricket a very hard sell to youngsters today who don't necessarily come from that background. So people like Cardus and Swanton uh, have been guilty of propagating that image. But there's also, and you mentioned them, so I need to address why I critique them, uh, you know, Mr. Berkman and Mr. Jupp. Now, what they embody, what their books embody for me is that they are privately educated white middle-class men who can afford to fail. What Working-class people, irrespective of their race, don't have that luxury. And what Berkman and Jupp do with their books is they then turn that failure into a profitable exercise by turning it into self-depreciating humour. Now, I'm sorry, you know, if they're not playing a very great standard of the cricket, they really shouldn't be turning that into a virtue. And because I, th in my eyes, that is what demeans cricket as a serious sport. You know, 99%, as much as we love and have played non-competitive, friendly cricket, let's be honest, 99% of the cricket played in this country during the summer is competitive. 
and people turn up to have a proper sporting contest. Yeah, but the, can I guess, I mean, well, Richard, I, will be, Richard will be too modest to mention this, but he's written a really lovely novel, I think quite a profound one, The Tale of Ten Wickets, which is a study of a cricket match in which, uh, you know, he has an f- idea, you know, it's one, one magic moment can just sort of give some meaning to your whole year, a brilliant catch, a third slip. And that that will make up for all of the, even though you're no good, you're nothing on the cricket pitch really, but there is just something you've done which is marvellous. And that is a, that is a sort of uh, expression of love for the game. And it's also, and also Richard uses the book to sort of show how this works in the personal lives and the sort of other tragedies and failures <laughs> and triumphs even of, in, in, in individual lives. And aren't you being a bit severe on that school of cricket fiction? Uh, no, I don't think so, because I think if, you, if people who read the book will see that I'm, I'm, high, I'm not critical of non-competitive cricket per se. Again, I go back to the very beginning of our chat. It's, it's the fact that people were presenting that as the apex of the game, you know, so clubs that are now in ECB Premier Leagues, the Surrey Championship, were playing non-competitive cricket all the way up to 1968, and yet they were claiming they were the best players. And then retrospectively, uh, people have had to admit that, well, we were picking blokes because they had a car with room for three people, or we were fielding uh, what were euphemistically known as non-benders, you know. That if if you if you've got players like that and there should be room for them in the game, but not at that level, and that that's the distinction. I've got nothing against non-competitive cricket at all. It's it's fetishization that I question. Going back to the literature of the game, I'd like to just suggest one other source of literature that had a big influence on the sort of perception of the game and the exclusionary was a kind of exclusionary force in the game and that's that's children's literature which is absolutely stuffed with um <laughs> you know with cricket played by public schoolboys um and and has a mass following um lots of people read about cricket and enjoy it but lots uh, but they read about it only in settings um uh, and by players they're never going to see and meet Mm. Um, I, th- I think I think that uh, you know you cannot underestimate the influence of. Uh, I mean, C. B. Fry had his own magazine, didn't he? Mm, um, yeah. But the, you know that what we would broadly call boys' own literature mm. was massively important uh, in terms of propagating the image uh, and and sort of justifying uh, the image of uh, sort of a public school way of doing things. Uh, but whether that actually reflected uh, the reality on the ground, I doubt it. Oh, but then that leads on to my next question. There is this genre of um, self-deprecating, humorous writing about cricket, and I'd like to defend it as a, as a partially, <laughs> partially a propagator. Um, not that I've had the success of Miles Jupp or um, Marcus Berkman, let me say. But um, why, why, Duncan, do you think there's been so little literature written about real competitive cricket, particularly Northern League cricket. Wasn't there a great mm. novel? Um, or even, a, I can't think of any novel that's uh, that's set in the milieu of, of competitive cricket. No, I, th- well, I think, uh, you, again, this, this may well boil down to uh, a class issue. You know, why did Wisden cover uh, public school cricket instead of uh, what one correspondent to the cricketer uh, referred to as real cricket um it's it's very difficult to sort of pin down it, it isn't it isn't an aspect uh, that i delved uh, especially deeply into as the, the that sort of tom brown school days uh, gets a mention of course you, mm. you can barely write a book about uh, the history of sport in this country without mentioning that book very good book and it's global way, it's global influence uh should not be underestimated uh, indeed, C.L.R. James himself uh, would appear to have uh, swallowed that book whole. <laughs> <laughs> it's very readable. I, it's absolutely compulsive, I found, when I read it when I was about nine years old. Um, yes, I, um, I mean, the game back to that league cricket, there is a sort of contemporary relevance to it now because there's this long discussion about why Australia thrashed us. And part of the answer people keep on coming up with is Aussie league cricket. Uh, you know these uh, long, long 
grade cricket, sorry to use the right term. And uh, that the, the Northern Leagues, which you quite rightly defend, uh, are much more like the grade cricket, aren't they, than uh, what, what what we have here in the in the bulk of the country here now in England. Yes, yes, and and the fact you know, it was, but it was the fact that um, you know, supposedly the best in inverted commas uh, clubs in the south of England were not playing in leagues. Uh, really held us back, and I think um, you know one of my personal favourite chapters is where I talk about the attempts to reintroduce uh, league cricket to the south after the uh, severe losses to uh, Bradman's Invincibles in 1948, and that chapter demonstrates ably the lengths that the games establishment would go to hinder progress. There's a very strong argument to be made that basically the people who, who've run cricket in this country from, uh, I suppose, the 1870s onwards, and certainly at the club cricket conference, actively sought to make the game less popular. Mm. And this is one of the most surprising things uh, I discovered it through my research is, and, and it's their words I'm quoting back in the book. This isn't something I've just, you know, I'm an empiricist. Uh, is just the the sense of propriety that the middle and upper classes believed they had over cricket. And it was almost like they were benevolently bestowing cricket on the nation when, in fact, they'd stolen it. Mm. <laughs> they'd stolen it and, and reinvented it in their own image. And I think cricket today, you know, even if we look at the recent Ashes uh, defeat, I think a lot of the problems stem from that hijacking of the game. And the fact that it isn't seen as a people's game, irrespective of the loss of all the playing fields in more recent decades, uh, it, it, it had an image problem even when I was a kid. You know, the, the, the men in uh, uh, egg and bacon uh, blazers snoozing uh, at Lords. You know, I mentioned that and yeah. I thought, I, they're, not like, they're not like my granddad who was playing at Chiddingfold uh, or Farncombe, sorry. Uh, you know, it just had bare, it bore no relation to my experience of cricket, what I saw on the television. Duncan, um, let's go back to the rise of association football for a minute. Um, uh, association football thrives in close contact with working class communities that sustain it. You present league cricket, competitive cricket, as a model that um, have the same closeness to um, surrounding communities. Why didn't cricket go down the same route as association football? Why wasn't cricket able to establish the same roots as a national game as association football? Well, unfortunately, as a, as a you know, as I said earlier, it, it it bore down to the fact that they were meritocratic and the people in charge of cricket didn't want that. Uh, you know, the county championship was barely a competition at all, and not just in terms of standards, but in its organisation. Again, we touched on this earlier, but, mm. you know, you would have counties playing different numbers of matches. Well, nobody can really objectively say, well, who's the best team? There is no grey area in football. Mm. Once they'd introduced the Football League and ultimately the 92 club pyramid, everybody knows exactly where they stand. That was never the case in terms of first-class cricket. And the reason why is because they rejected in 1889 the opportunity to create a three-division county cricket league. Mm. And again, had they made the right call and formed a three-division county league in 1889, we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> and I think cricket would have remained the national sport. Why wasn't there a fight back against this um, sort of amateur conspiracy to um, deny competitive cricket in, um, uh, deny competition in cricket? Why didn't, um, you know, uh, competitive clubs break away or, um, you know, or even, you know, fight back and take over? Why do they accept well, we... this amateur, the, these incompetent amateurs running the show? Well, the, they had all the money, the power and the influence. I mean, they were pretty much impregnable. Uh, you know, working class people only had the vote, you know, 
you know, after the First World War. So the county championship by that stage was well established. So it was pretty much bulletproof by that stage, uh, no matter how badly run it was. And to be honest, they didn't really, you could pick or choose, you know, Obviously, when it came to, say, local derbies like Yorkshire versus Lancashire, everybody would turn out and that would be the game. But broadly speaking, the it would appear that the, count, the counties were less well supported than the leagues. So there maybe wasn't a need to challenge the counties. You know, it might have been the attitude of, well, we've got what we want here. Mm. Accessible cricket that is fast a good standard and you get a result within a day so it doesn't interfere with my valuable free time too much mm. uh, leave them to it mm. might have been my attitude <laughs> if i had the opportunity to go to um you know see leary constantine down the road well i wouldn't be uh i wouldn't be going up to old trafford would i i'll be going to see leary yeah, at nelson now, can i uh, just um try and defend myself against the uh, attack you made on only glancing blow, a sort of, uh, but nothing, nevertheless an attack, on my analysis of Kevin Peterson, who, who I thought of as a, a, a sort of manifestation of late capitalism, sort of stateless, really um, neoliberal, and had left South Africa because he didn't like the quota system in, in, in the Mandela era. I mean... I couldn't see a case for Peterson, uh, but you thought my my attack on Peterson was attack on working class cricketers, didn't you? Uh, no. Um, what I felt your take on Peterson, you know, when you said he, uh, you know, as a South African, you know, his mindset had been formed in a different com- country, and you know, you implied that he had no idea what it meant to be British. Well, my issue with that statement is that who gets to decide what being British is? Um, so, you know, it's not for Peter O'Borne of the Daily Telegraph to dictate Englishness or Britishness. So, and... But what, what I found, when I was citing actual events, you know, his fraternisation with the South African players at the end of that test match, the way he tra- treated James Taylor... Uh, when he batted with him, uh, the sense that he, it was a purely um, utilitarian connection he had with the English team and his abandonment of the South African team uh, at a time when it was building a great non-racial side. Yeah, it's it's a short career. uh, And obviously he had issues with the quota system it's complicated, but I would say, you know, it's not it's not for the likes of journalists or even me, for that matter, <laughs> to dictate what Britishness is. And I would struggle to find, you know, apart from our accents, you know, an objective difference between a South African and a and a and a British person. You know, what I didn't quite know what you were implying, unless you were suggesting that South Africans don't play fair or they're all just mercenary as i say in the book no, you know, I mean, it's, 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 the other broader point there is the way in which um the stateless uh, neoliberalism is, a, is, a, is as you know hostile to the nation state and so what you have is let's take, take them uh, the case of Owen morgan it's wonderful that he's been a great player for england but what a loss to ireland if you look mm. at the early years, which he is, he's Irish too. He comes from North Dublin, and that's who he is. And uh, Graham Hick, you know, he could have really built the early Zimbabwe team in terms of which he's snaffled by England. There's all kinds of cases. Fazal Mahmood, you know, he, he India wanted him after after partition, but he stayed and became the emblem of the uh, you know the the match winner for Pakistan. And without him, I doubt that Pakistan would even have. Tained test match status. So I'd, it is a sense that there is such a thing. I disagree with you. It's, again, it's interesting how you take neoliberal positions on a lot of things. You, have the, you, take, you share the neoliberal analysis of county cricket. You share the neoliberal analysis of the nation state. It's very interesting. There are contradictions, aren't there, in what you're saying? Well, life isn't black and white, is it? It's, uh, you know, it's a multi-shades of grey in between. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think... Uh, you know, just imagine 
how bloody awful England would have been over the last century had we not had all these imports from mm. South Africa and Australia and New Zealand. My God, I mean, that would really be the indictment of the county system uh, had we not imported all these players. You know, Alan, imagine, you know, Alan Lamb or whoever, uh, Andrew Caddick, you know, Stokes even, you know, dubious uh, connections. Um, so I think, you know, it's, I don't blame these guys for doing what they do in a system as it exists. You know, the adoption of various things over the years has created this, you know, football-like system where you basically follow the money. And I don't blame any of them. If they can satisfy the qualification criteria, go for it. You know, I was there at Headingley to witness uh, Stokes's innings. So thank God he qualified to play for England because I, I would take that day to the grave. It was the best day's sport I've ever seen of any mm. kind. Uh, but, you know... I don't think Stokes is analogous of Peterson, by the way. He played cricket from, a, what, from the age of 12 or something in this country. His family came, uh, you know, came over in the when he was a, a very young man. Yeah, yeah. Not, not an old... Not, not a, Peterson had played for South Africa under-19s, I think. Mm, yeah. But again, you know, you, you could look at the standard of English cricket. Take all those players away. Oh, dear. <laughs> Duncan, your book gives a very full and pretty up-to-date treatment of the racial crisis uh, in English cricket. I'm going to ask you a rather difficult question. How far do you see this crisis as a continuation of the sort of class problems that you analysed um, so thoroughly? Um, and how far is it something, something more? Um, is it a... Um, an overlay of, of attitudes which run throughout English society because racism isn't confined at all to the, um, you know, the, the Southern amateurs, the, um, uh, the class you, you criticise. It's, it's prevalent. No, it's, every, it's everywhere. It's prevalent everywhere, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think in terms of the class issues that I highlight at the, sort of the beginning of the book, what they do is they establish the structures that, very, are very often used to uh, keep minority cricketers out of the recreational mainstream and arguably, obviously, uh, the first-class game itself. You know, one of my interviewees, Alf Langley, certainly found the culture of club cricket in the south of England uh, unbearable uh, in the early 1970s. You know, it was all very much that, you know, the captain had his own parking spot and that sort of business. Uh, and as the only sort of black player in an all-white, broadly middle-class team, he had an absolutely shocking time until he discovered Shepherd's Bush Cricket Club, which was uh, a more egalitarian, shall we say, operation. Norman Cowan's opened the bowling for Shepherd's Bush when I was living Oh, there. did it? Yeah. Oh, right. Crikey, wouldn't want to face him. <laughs> no, I avoided that match. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we have also... Uh, you know, this fetishization in this country of, you know, having grass wickets and well-appointed pavilions. You know, now this also discriminates against minority clubs that would be uh, reliant upon municipal facilities. But of course, it, it, it is a societal problem and other sports clearly have problems as well. Uh, but I would say... You know, it's not just the ECB. It's not just Yorkshire County Cricket Club. It's all of the institutions of this country, be it the government, you know, the Metropolitan Police, the media, uh, have either encouraged or excused racism for too long. And uh, regrettably, I would argue that, you know, this is a situation that has only got worse uh, in the build-up and aftermath of the Brexit referendum. But this is what happens, unfortunately, uh, and Britain as a whole, and cricket in particular, and this is why I wrote the book, have a false, disingenuous image of ourselves. You know, our history is elitist. It disenfranchises, apart from the work of E.P. Thompson, as you mentioned at the beginning, and my book now, it disenfranchises the majority of the people who did the most 
to make this country make cricket, you know, a national game. Um, and if we perpetuate this false image of ourselves, which invariably excludes people from different, you know, black and uh, South Asian people, uh, we're not doing ourselves any favor. And, and, and the game is riven with cultural signifiers that exclude rather than include. And I cite in at the end of the book, uh, the England men's team certainly coming out for test matches to the strains of Jerusalem. Well, whose England is that? It's not my England. And I bet you pound to a penny, it's not a 15 year old South Asian lad from Bradford's England either. So this is a lot of the cultural baggage that has to be, has to go. Uh, and I would argue that, you know, we're still having books on Swanton and Cardus. That sort of stuff needs to go as well. These are long dead men who did much damage to cricket as a people's game. Cricket at its heart is a people's game. It needs to rediscover that spirit. That is the spirit of cricket that we should be striving for. Not do you do a mancad or not. That's a distraction. We need, and this goes for the country as a whole, we need to rediscover altruism. You know, look out for one another. Help each other up rather than pull the ladder up. Uh, which, is, which is far too much goes on in this country. And, it, and we see it in cricket. Uh, I was talking to, so I helped run a football club here in Surrey, uh, Kings Park Rangers, and we our, our pitch is actually at a cricket ground. And I was talking to their uh, chairman, who is sort of halfway through the book at the moment, and his son had a trial for Surrey. First question, what school do you go to? Well, what's that got to do with the price of bread? Really? So we need to make cricket open and welcoming to all people. And as I argue in the book, as bad as the racism is, class remains the underlying issue that needs to be addressed. Now, class and race are two sides of the same coin, of course, because there are more people from ethnic minorities living in poverty in this country and their access to facilities uh, is patently worse uh, than the white community as a whole. But if we don't sort out the class issues of this country, cricket and, and cricket's organisational structure, uh, I think the game is in trouble. But I think society as a whole is in a bit of trouble because what we've witnessed and the sale of industrial and school playing fields uh, embody this is the gradual hollowing out of the pillars that enabled ordinary people like me when I was a kid to participate in civil society. Now, cricket should be part of that, should be front and center of that. But unfortunately, all of those grounds that we've lost are gone. They're not coming back. Uh, and it goes, it's the same for art schools. It's the same you know, access to things that enabled ordinary people to participate in society in this country have been hollowed out to a mere husk. And we really need to start rebuilding those. And cricket, in terms of race, in terms of class, given recent events, has a golden opportunity to be at the forefront of those changes. We just need to stop paying ECB executives millions of pounds in bonuses and put the money into the grassroots of the game where it is not only the most needed, where it will do the most good. Right, that is uh, the end of your Henry V before adding course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I have to that last point we can agree on and a lot else besides. It's in a really stimulating book, obviously very needed, I disagree with lots, but I agree with certain things. And there's so much to argue about. It's a really important book. Thank you, Duncan. My pleasure, gents. My pleasure. Indeed. I'll endorse that, Duncan. Um, still slightly miffed at the, um, <laughs> the treatment of uh, incompetent um, comic cricketers. Because, <laughs> you I'm, forget, one, I'm of them, one of those as well. Main, but the main, <laughs> but the, the main thrust of this book is, is something really important and something that should be taken into account. Uh, in any discussion of the future of cricket, not just in England, but, but worldwide. 
Um, so, Duncan, thank you for joining us. I'll just repeat the title again. The title of the book is Different Class. And I um, really recommend it strongly to all lovers of cricket. And it's goodbye from me, Peter O'Born, in a sunny and troublingly warm Wiltshire. Goodbye from me, Richard Heller, in a still dank and damp southeast London. <laughs>